All right, so we last week we started a new book. We had, we went into the book of John and we covered the first five verses. I do want to refresh on that real quick only because the first 18 verses of John, which we're going to cover 6 through 18 today, the first 18 verses of this book are probably some of the most important scriptures in the New Testament. Uh, they tell you everything that you need to know about Christianity. They tell you everything you need to know about God, about salvation. It's all here, and so it's really important to get a grasp on it. Um, so just to refresh the first five verses real quick, where in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus before His incarnation, the Word was with God, meaning Christ was with the Father, and the Word was God. So we have these two who are God. He was in the beginning with God, in the beginning saying that He was there before there was a beginning. To be there at the beginning means you were existed before. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him not even one thing has come into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. So we have John telling us who God is, how long God has been with us, all eternity, the fact that life comes from God, and then we're going to go a little bit more into it in these other verses. So just a little preface there. But when we get to, we, so we get to verses 6 through 8 here, and we start talking of John. So a, a man came, one sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So what we have here, no matter what people will tell you, because it's proven every day in archaeology, we have a historical thing going on here. John is coming on the scene, John the Baptist, and the Bible is telling us that. John the Baptist is coming and he's professing that people need to come to God because the time is coming for the Christ. So John, right off the bat though, he limits himself. He says, I'm telling you about the light, but it ain't me. And he had a following at that time. Very quickly, people started following John. They liked John. They liked what he was saying. And he said, don't follow me. You need to follow him who's coming after. So, John is staying humble in this. He's witnessing. He's baptizing people. And this, although it's a small verse, it sets an important precedence for what happens when we witness or why we should witness. Because when you're witnessing, you're, you're telling the truth, because there is only one truth. There's not many truths in this world. There is one truth. And you're planting a seed. You're not going to convert somebody right at that spot, because you're not the one that does the converting. It's God. But you're planting the seed. You're setting a foundation of truth for something to be established there. You're establishing that Jesus is the Christ, that Christ died and rose, that He intercedes for us to the Father, and that in Him, as the Scriptures say, is life. So, to witness earnestly and honestly is a serious thing because it's not just between me and you, right? It's between me and God because I need to be telling the truth. 
I need to be serious about what I'm doing, not doing it for personal gain. So to, to be an evangelist like John is to be committed and is to stand up and declare no matter what the world is saying, Jesus is God, Jesus is my Savior, and that I'm not neutral anymore. I have taken a side. And sometimes people aren't willing to do that anymore because it makes you look bad in society. But you have to consider this because Scripture talks about it constantly. In Romans 10, 13-14, it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then are they to call on Him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him who they have not heard? How are they to hear without a preacher? It's not talking about me. It's talking about every believer in the faith. How are they going to hear if you haven't told them? And I don't mean just, oh, you know, they know they've heard the name Jesus. I mean telling people who he is, what he has done for you. If you don't tell them, some people might never know. And you will be you'll be negligent on sharing a eternal principle. So it's not just, you know, you'll hear constantly. People say, well, you know, that's a little uncomfortable to do something like that. I just live a good life, and I'm nice to people, and I show Christ through that way. That is an important thing. We are supposed to do that, but that's not going to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. You have to actually tell them. You have to actually say it. Bringing the gospel to the table when you're speaking with someone. So if you care enough, you will. So verse 9 through 11, though, where it says, this is going to talk more of Christ now. This was the true light that coming coming into the world enlightens every person. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. What we have here, and it can be taken out of context, when it says that he enlightens every person, this is not a statement of universal salvation. Because what we have him saying here, he talks of Christ as the true light. And if he's going to say that there's a true light, that means that there are false lights. That means that there are things that you can hear that seem good at first glance, but they fade quickly and they don't remain in you. So, Due to Christ's effect on the world, that is the only reason that anybody knows what good is. That's the only reason even people outside of the faith would do something good. Because if God is good, that's where it's all coming from. So that's what this verse is talking of. saying He enlightens the world, brings goodness to people's hearts. they got to listen. They don't have to. So... This, if this verse was the end of this book, it would be a very tragic ending because all we see is that he came to his own and they didn't know him and they didn't accept him. The people that he brought into being, which is all of us, were rejecting him. And when it speaks of his people, of course, obviously we know he's coming to the Jews first and then later to the Gentiles. But his people who supposedly studied the Scriptures, who supposedly were going to the temple all the time, they didn't know Him when He was right in front of their face. They didn't know what He was bringing, even though He was doing miracles right then. And this is a people, if we look historically, 
a people who have not believed the messengers of God over and over again in the Old Testament. You will see many times in the Old Testament where people come to God, and then very quickly they fall away. That's basically the story of the nation of Israel. Constantly doing that. If you read the book of Judges, you'll get tired of seeing how many times they come to God, and then they go, well, this looks a little better. right? Until things go badly, and then all of a sudden here they are coming back. The story of probably many of our lives. So, but as many, this is verse 12 and 13, but as many did, as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this is where it gets important. This is where it gets good but it gets very personal because God is saying very specifically to you and me, if you believe in my name, you will become a child of God. He's not saying it's a guarantee just because you're born. Everybody's born and not everybody becomes a child of God. He says if you believe in his name and what he has done, you'll become a child of God. And he gives us instances of things that don't count for that. He says, it's not your lineage. It's not your parents. You might have the biggest believing parent of all time. If you don't choose, it doesn't matter. Your parents' belief can't get you into heaven. Right? The works it talks about. You can, make, you can live by the law all you want. You can do every good deed that the law says you should do. That's not what gets you into heaven. That's what it's saying here. You can try. You can want to get into heaven. That's, the, that's the, the tough one to think of. A person can want to get into heaven, but if they don't believe in Jesus Christ, then they don't go. Christ says He is the only way in. And that's the Scriptures talking. It's not a personal bias on it, but that's what our Scriptures say. That it is through Jesus Christ that we get into heaven, not through these things, not blood, not the will of the flesh, not the will of man. But it says that when we believe that we become a child of God, that we are born again. It's not baptisms. It's not a sinner's prayer. It's just belief. Because the object of our faith is not the church building. It's not, it's not even the Bible. Uh, it's Jesus Christ. Before there was a Bible, there was Jesus, right? And there were Christians. So, it's Jesus that is the object of what we should be worshiping, of who we should be worshiping. And when that happens, the Scriptures is telling us here that we become born again. And born again is something that some people ignore, some people don't understand, some people don't like, because they like to be, we like to be, and I will admit to be the first one in that group of people, we like to be the way that we are. We don't want to change. But that's not what Scripture says. It says that when you come to Christ, you are reborn as a new person. So what does that mean, though? This is probably a really bad analogy, but think if you had a car, okay? You had just a junk heap. And you put it in reverse, it goes forward, vice versa. You turn left, it goes right. Um, and then your GPS doesn't take you to the right place. 
You get a repair. You you re, you uh, you have this car reborn. You get a new engine. Transmission actually works right. Steering turns the way it should. Your GPS actually takes you to the right place. You can't go back to driving it the way that you could before because it's not the same vehicle anymore. That's kind of an analogy to being born again. How can you go back to thinking the way that you did before if you have been completely overhauled, if you are not the same person? I, there was some, uh, some people talking about this one time, and I thought it was really interesting because there was a person who was saying, he was calling himself, he was an atheist, and he was saying, I'm a, I'm a former Christian. And if you'd asked me five or six years ago, I would have just said, okay, well, that's too bad. That stinks. But here's the thought. And maybe I'm wrong on this. And if I am, you know, most certainly speak up. If you're born again, Christ is everything behind your decisions, behind your thinking. Everything comes from God. So you're going to tell me that you were born again Christ is at the helm. Everything is being pushed through him to you. And he's going to tell you to walk away from the faith. I don't understand how that could truly happen. Christ is not going to tell you to leave. So I think when people say things like that, and it's not ultimately it's not our place to say, but it doesn't sound really correct that somebody who's born again could become an atheist. It doesn't sound right. Christ took over your thinking and then told you to leave. I, I don't know if I believe it. So, <clears throat> But verse 14 here where we get to some really important stuff. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is a really important part of our theology. This is a really important part of understanding who the Father and the Son are. It gives us illumination to see in the correct light who God is. So, the Word became flesh. When we're saying the Word, we are still referencing back to the first two verses here, where we see where the Word was in the beginning, meaning before the beginning, that the Word was with God and was God. So what we have is, God became flesh. When you look at this, God became flesh and dwelt among us. So in Jesus becoming flesh, in him taking on a body, we find that bridge between man and God being being gapped there, being filled. We find our hope and we find our peace because all of a sudden God is right there with us. He is not far away as some people would constantly think. If you were a Jew back in this time, this would be really hard to accept because what's, what John is telling these people is that the God who you read about in the Old Testament who's done all these things, he's, he's sitting right next to you at the, at the table. That's what John's telling them. So it's not, it's not hard to believe that some people would go, what are you talking about back then? This would be really hard for them to understand. So, this is not that God just briefly took on a little bit of flesh, that He manifested it, that it was just a facade, because that's what some people would say. 
This is that God put on flesh, meaning that he added, Jesus Christ added humanity to his deity. He added it to him. And that's how he took residence with us. In the Old Testament, we see the tabernacle that they would take with them as they were traveling, especially through the desert. We see the temples. And all these these places, they were a center for the people to camp around, to be near God. They were where they preserved the Ten Commandments. They were where they got revelation from God. They were where uh, sacrifices were made. They were the center of worship for Israel. But all of that changed when Christ went on the cross. That's why the veil ripped. We don't have to live like Christ is far away anymore. The New Testament tells us nonstop that we are the temple now, meaning God is residing in us, so we don't have to go anywhere for revelation. We don't have to look for the dwelling place of God. We don't have to look for the law of Moses. All those things are written on our heart anyways. We don't have to go and make an animal sacrifice because Christ went on the cross so that you wouldn't have to do that anymore. And now daily, you just sacrifice the things of your old flesh that you don't want to do anymore. That's why everything is different in the New Testament from the Old. They are vastly different, and that's why it's a new covenant. So these people, this is important that they did not see Christ in a vision. Some would say that maybe Paul did, that maybe that's how he saw him. But these people didn't. They were walking with him. They were talking with him. And this is how they know what grace and truth was. They were listening to him say it. And it's important that he stated both of these things, that grace and truth is found in Christ. Because if you notice, they're linking together that there's no grace without truth, no grace without truth. You have to have truth. But there's also no truth without grace. They exist eternally together because they are part of Christ. It's only in biblical Christianity that we are going to find grace and truth because that's where God reaches down to all of us sinners and He pulls us out of the depths and He saves us with His work because if we're going to do it, we're never going to get there. So the Word became flesh because we couldn't find salvation on our own. And God's will is that all would come to Him. The Word became flesh for reconciliation. So, last couple verses here, uh, 15 through 18, where it says, John testified about Him, calling out, saying, This was He whom I said, He who is coming after me has proved to be my superior because He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son who is in the arms of the Father, He has explained Him. So John says that He has existed before me. Now remember, John could not be speaking physically. John was born first. John was born first, so he's not speaking of that. He recognizes this is God, and he has always existed, so obviously would have existed before him. He knew who Jesus was. He talks here 
of the inexhaustible supply of grace upon grace. When I was working in the, in the jails, this was a nonstop problem. I've done too much. How could God ever accept me for the things that I've done? And there are people that have done horrific things in their life. Horrific things. God says that if you come to Him, He has grace upon grace. And if we don't like that, then there is something wrong in our heart. We should want everyone to have the same grace that we are receiving. He doesn't have an interruption on it. When you're having a bad day, when you've slipped up and done something really bad, he's saying that grace is still there. Now, you may have to deal with man's law, but grace is still there when it comes to God. Uh, Where it says there in 17, it said, uh, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John is going to keep coming back to this as we go through the book. It's not going to go away. Grace and truth is going to keep being a topic here. Because in Christ, we find that the law is insufficient. We find that although it is there, it is only a guide to Christ, to grace. Because nobody's going to keep it. When you go go and read the Beatitudes next time, and see if you are truly one of those people. I don't know if I fit one of those. And the point is that Christ knows we're not going to meet those and that we're going to need Him to get there. People try to use those as a goalpost. Yes, you want to live good, but the, mo- the main purpose of, ev- of those laws are to point to the fact that you need Christ more than you realize. Nobody's going to be perfect except for Jesus. So, like I said, truth is going to keep coming up here. And he also talks here, though, of seeing God. Now, he would have been talking to the Jews at this time, but this most certainly applies to us, where he says that no one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son who is in the arms of the Father, has explained Him. So if we want to know what God the Father is like, John is saying, look to Jesus Christ. You will see Him, because they are a mirror image. We see the incarnate God in Jesus Christ, and all He does And all He says declares the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were raised on the King James and you remember this verse, it probably sounds a little strange. And this is more of a technicality, but in case somebody is really big in the King James, it's probably worth talking about. In this verse, it says that God, in in the NASB here, it says God the only Son who is in the arms of the Father, Now, in the King James, it would have said, the only begotten Son. This is the difference in manuscripts. It's a technicality, like I said. It's a bit of a Bible nerd thing. But even if it said the only begotten Son, we know who they are talking about because we know what happened in verses 1 and 2, where it was in the beginning was the Word, which is Jesus, and and the Word was with God. So we know that it is still talking of God no matter which way you read that. So I just think that it's kind of it's worth mentioning just to say that it's not really worth fretting over more than anything. It's still Jesus, it's still God either way no matter what they say there. So <clears throat> Jesus explains the Father. This would have been really important for Jewish people, but it's still really important for us. 
in his words, like I said, in his actions, but he reveals that truth and grace that we need. Because if we try to make it on this life all on our own, you're going to stress yourself to death. You're never going to make it. And life's going to be really hard. If you've ever tried doing that, you know the desperation that lives inside you when you try to meet a mark that you just can't get to. To know the true and living God is life eternal. Now, people often will plead ignorance on this. I've ran into that probably more than I've ran into the other. And what I mean is that people will say, I don't know. I don't understand what God is, who God is. Um, Now, assuming that they want to know, like I said, these first 18 verses, they teach you everything that you need. And it's not something that you read and in five minutes later you understand it. This is something you could spend a year of your life on. It's very comprehensive and it tells us all that we need in the rest of the book, really. So if you know somebody who's lost on these thoughts, tell them to read the first 18 verses of John. Tell them to ingest these verses, to pray on them. You know, and I just, and to ask themselves, do I believe what John is saying about Jesus here? Because all the scriptures are God breathed, so that means that it's God saying it. What are the scriptures saying? Go to the text and find out. Go to God and find out. You can listen to a pastor all day long, but that won't save you. You have to go to the text. You have to go to God and decide if you believe it or not. And these verses are a really good set of verses to figure that out for yourself.